And hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Glove Podcast. My name is Gabrielle Love and I am your host. Thank you again for tuning in. Thank you so much for all of the support and then just an outpouring of support that I've been getting as well as feedback. I really do appreciate that. And thank you for listening. We're back with another intuitive session. I'm so excited to have Nick with us today. I will welcome him to the podcast in a few moments. Before I do that, I just want to say thank you, Nick, for joining us. Thank you for the beautiful conversation we're about to have. That said, let's get started. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here, Gabriella. Yeah, my pleasure. Please feel free to take a moment to introduce yourself. Okay. Well, my name is Nick. What I want to say about myself is that I really enjoy life in the space where creativity happens and life happens and work happens and family happens and it all kind of happens together. So, you know, there are certain things that I do in the world uh, regarding, you know, business and, you know, maybe we'll get into that a little bit more, but just really happy to be here. And, you know, I guess by way of introduction, I'm a world traveler, I'm a storyteller, and I'm someone that's deeply committed to finding some harmony and balance between people and the planet. Beautiful. I love that. I love, love, love that. Thank you. And I love uh, the way you phrase that, what I want to say about myself or what I'd like to say about myself. That's a really nice way of putting things. And I think I might use that on the next episode. <laughs> Probably. Okay, cool. I'll ask people to say something about themselves. That's so cool. What does finding balance between people and planet look like? What does that mean? Well, it doesn't always mean like balance in the moment. It certainly can mean great upheaval and disruption uh, along the way. But for me, it really is about just the simple, simple stuff. You know, the fact that we as humans are mammals and animals and spirits and gods living on this planet. And that really basic idea of just stepping out in the morning and putting your bare feet on the ground uh, when it's not too cold, of course, and in connection with life and with your own life and with the life of the beings around you, whether they be animal, mineral, spiritual, whatever. I don't know. It's for me, it's not a very, it's not something that it's like not a theoretical thing. It's just like a feeling, you know? Mm, yeah. I like it being in connection with uh, people, beings, whatever, plants. I've a, uh, I'm sorry to share in that respect. I was walking over to a coffee shop not long ago and on my walk there, I decided to kind of take a shortcut. You know, there's a sidewalk and a cement path that leads to the door as well as a lining of plants along the way. Mm -hmm. And so instead of kind of following the, the path, I cut through the plants to give myself a shortcut. And as I did that, my earphones got tangled. They had a very long cord, so it got tangled with the plants. And so I was I was kind of standing there for a few moments trying to untangle my earphones. And as I did that, I, I realized that, you know, I'd walked by this plant or these plants many times. And not once did I kind of stop to recognize that the plants were there, nor did I really notice them or take a moment to kind of acknowledge their existence and their presence. And, and so as I was untangling myself, you know, it was kind of like, oh, there's a plant here. And I here I was about to just kind of use the space that this plant is occupying mm. without actually stopping to say, well, hello, plant, or mm. I don't know, thank you, plant. And, you know, thank you for all that you do. And, and, you know, both for the environment and the ecosystem, as well as, you know, being so pleasing to my eye, you know, being so beautiful mm. for me to behold. So I definitely think there's a lot of room for taking the time to 
connect with everything around us. And I definitely think that that sometimes uh, requires a very conscious effort because it's easy to just kind of walk by things and, and not notice them at all. Absolutely. I really love that story and that anecdote because what it reminds me is like, I had this conversation with a fairly wise person a few years ago. And uh, he said to me, he said, the plants need you to help it grow. Mm. I was like, what what do you mean? Like I give it water. And he's like, no, it needs you. It needs your acknowledgement. It needs your recognition to actually help it grow. So you're actually helping the plants by stopping and acknowledging. And at the time, you know, I kind of understood it at a, maybe at a certain level, but you know, I think that story that you, you shared really articulates that idea that, we live in a symbiotic kind of relationship with the world. And like, even though I think it, it kind of speaks to uh, maybe sometimes like the difficulty in seeing that is that we don't even recognize our own worth or our own power or our own necessity, like how important we are to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of, obviously that comes with a little bit of responsibility, but I really feel like it's maybe people don't see themselves as important or like if they weren't here, like what would happen? And they just kind of like, well, you know, if I wasn't here, life would go on and that kind of thing. And and then, so I feel like it, maybe it's pointing to how important that is. Mm-hmm. For yeah. People. I love that you brought that up. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the matter. How did that happen? How did so many of us sort of stumble into this perspective that we're maybe not as important as we actually are to the, you know, ecosystems around us and to the people around us? And my first sort of inclination is to think that we simply weren't taught that as children and that we just didn't learn things that way or didn't learn to relate to the world or to ourselves in in that way. And that's just what it is. But Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I hate to dust off the old chestnut of capitalism, but I have to say it's probably got something to do with (laughs) the whole process by which people became alienated from the land, from nature in a way that at the time probably felt like a good thing. People are leaving more subsistence level, you know, living and they have this opportunity to maybe move to a city where there's a regular paycheck and food and protein and like shelter. And so like, I don't, you know, judge or criticize that movement, you know, from the rural to the urban. But at the same time, it like, it comes with it some sacrifices, right? Like giving up that connection. And I think it's also been, there's been this trend for, I don't even know how many thousands of years, but this trend towards like trying to fight with nature, this trend towards like trying to, you know, overcome and conquer it and sort of like be the, be the top dog, so to speak. And I think that that's got something to do with it. I think that's got something to, that that evolutional process is kind of how we got here. And And that's sort of, it's interesting to see that kind of starting to melt away a little bit in the last few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. Thank you for sharing that. And and I definitely do think I also noticed uh, the melting away of that. Although I can't say that I can really conceptualize what the world might look like, you know, if we find a balance between that sort of urban city, modern, technologically advanced world with the older intentions of, you know, being in harmony with nature and working with nature. I don't really know what that would look like practically, but I'd love to hear, do you, do you have sort have you thought about, you know, what that might look like? Do, is there a particular kind of world that you envision in which there is that balance? Well, I definitely feel like I want to caveat this first by saying, 
I think that there is a need for unbalance in the world and there's a need for balance and unbalancing. And so I think that the process of evolution is a balancing and an unbalancing and then a completely new rebalancing that happens. So I definitely feel like it's a part of our cyclical path, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, you know, now feels like of those times of obviously a lot of unbalancing is happening. You don't even need to look very far, uh, probably in your own neighborhood and, and your own area right now. There's like, there's people that are feeling and that are expressing this desire to unbalance things, to disrupt things. And so that feels like that's a part of where we're at just as a, as a, you know, at, in the current moment, you know, I don't spend a ton of time, like thinking about the specifics of the future because my brain, you know, if I do that, it's almost like I'm trying to see through reality through a keyhole. Mm -hmm. And so I leave it a little bit more vague in my mind and just focus more on like, okay, what's happening today? You know, how is this looking in terms of that? So I'm not trying to duck the question. It's just something that I feel like, I don't know, I, I don't have a, an answer to what it will look like. I just feel like it's heading in a, in that general trajectory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. And I agree with you. I think I recognize that I have a, a I find it challenging to conceptualize. And, and I think that it would take a lot of energy on my part for to actually get anywhere in that sense. It's a lot more productive not to spend my time or energy trying to figure out what the specifics would be. But that brings up a question that I love asking people. What is it like to be in your mind? What is a day like in the mind of Nick? Well, that is a really interesting question. What is a day like in my mind? It's definitely quieter than it used to be. I definitely have come to a place where I focus a lot on keeping it quiet as much as I can, because I have one of those brains that is like always active, you know, always thinking and moving to a new level and just trying to like figure things out, right? It's, it's naturally always chewing on data and spitting out reports and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's sort of where my mind is at the moment. So my mind, it begins as soon as I open my eyes. My, like I'm one of those people that has a difficult time going back to sleep. So as soon as I'm awake, my mind is like, bing. Okay. So as we were saying, it's almost like there was like an interrupted conversation mm -hmm. when I sleep. And then when I wake up, that conversation is like, all right, here we go <laughs> next day. But what I really want to say about this is that my mind, as a very young child, I was given a lot of uh, love from key people in my life. Mm -hmm. And so even though I grew up at a time in the 80s where it was a difficult time to be a sensitive person, I would suspect, you know, like people that were maybe more sensitive or more aware of energy probably had a harder time of things than maybe they do even now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I recognized that around me, there was like toxic behavior and people and the system that I was kind of grew up in and whatever, it wasn't the best. I had some early, early people that just really helped my brain develop in a way that my brain never became my enemy. It was like always my friend. Mm -hmm. And even when I had difficult times or difficult thoughts or, or challenges in my life, it was like, I, I always felt like that it was on my side, you know? Mm -hmm even as I delved into certain aspects of mental illness, like anxiety and depression, I just felt even though like my brain is producing like some of these really negative thoughts, I felt like I could see my way through it. I felt like if I could just sort of like quiet things enough that it would guide me to the right place. 
That's quite beautiful. That's a really interesting thing that you bring up because I feel my experience in terms of the way in which I relate or perceive my own brain or my mind has been very similar. And I've always, even in probably the most difficult moments of my life, I still, there was still a part of me that had complete faith in the ability and the skill level of, you know, my mind and my brain to to move through it and, and to take that experience and kind of draw out a new skill, if you will, or, or like level to level me up. So it always, for me, seemed like it was a way of leveling up. So whenever I do feel like I'm, I'm facing some sort of challenge and, and whether that's, you know, external or internal, there's always a part of me that thinks, hey, this is actually just like if we're in a video game, this is me fighting like, you know, the big boss at the end of the level. And once mm -hmm. I'm done this, I'm going to be at the next level and I'll be playing that. So I've always felt that way. And it's interesting that you bring that up. And I've always been curious as to, you know, what what were the circumstances that allowed for that kind of a self perception to, you know, take place? And I think one of the things you mentioned was that in childhood, you felt very loved by people in your life. Do you think that that was what kind of empowered you to take on this perspective for yourself? Or were there other circumstances that helped? Well, I have to say that I feel like at the earliest ages, that was, I'm particularly going to, you know, speak about my mother, because she was really a trailblazer. You know, she was an early, well, is at that time, she was an early childhood educator. Now she just, you know, a lot, a lot of other things as well, but she's also a, a professor of early childhood education. And so she, at that time, you know, like she was like really ahead of everybody else. Like there was like, you know, she was like, no, don't spank your kids and no, like, don't, you know, like try and give them healthy food and, you know, all of this stuff, which was like, she got a lot of pushback from, particularly, you know, from like different family members who are like, no, that's not how you raise children. And so I have to give her a lot of credit for seeing the future. And, you know, I'd also have to give a lot of credit to my dad for, for seeing the future because his contribution, like with my mom, it was just like unconditional love and support. And like, really, I feel like that was really helpful for my neurological development. And, and the more I understand and learn about early childhood and how important it is, it's like, it almost is like the X factor, right? Like just that that love that that helps the brain almost in the way that, you know, we're talking about watching the plant grow, you know, I feel like it's very a kind of an interesting kind of similarity there. But with my dad, he was already seeing, you know, we, I grew, I was born in a, a small city in Ontario called Sarnia. And it's like a, you know, very industrial city. And so his, his desire was to leave and he wanted to see the world and he wanted to travel and he wanted to break out of the programming that he was raised in and try something different. And so I think that combination of love and then, you know, having a really like a high flying kind of dad who was just like, yo, let's go see everything. You need to try everything. Don't worry about the rules. Like my dad never graduated high school, but he just, you know, kind of always figured out a way through the system and mm -hmm. figured out a way to find happiness and find adventure. And so I think those two kind of influences were really pivotal in, in being able to be a more of a problem solver and more of a, you know, someone that could see through the challenges versus getting stopped by them. That's really awesome. That makes complete sense. I know that you became a father maybe a couple of years ago. Is that right? Or That's right. Yeah. Three years yeah. ago, just about. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank um, you. 
how, what, what, like, what, I don't know, I guess share some thoughts around raising a child. What's that been like for you? And what are, are there key sort of lessons that you've learned so far? I'm, I imagine you're learning every day. Share more about that. What's sure. that like? What was interesting about being, becoming a parent was up until that point, and I lived a very, I would call it like more of a Peter Pan lifestyle up to that point in my life. You know, I had jobs and responsibilities, but like I didn't have, you know, real responsibilities, if, you, if that makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. I was like always, hey, let's go on a trip or hey, let's travel. Let's, let's go party. Let's have a good time. And so that part of my life was just uh, in a way I was trying to avoid certain responsibilities, but I was also gifting myself like this life because I had a feeling that my life was going to get more serious if not in how I live it, but in terms of the consequences or the opportunities. So I had this feeling that, you know what, have a good time, but know that you're not really going to be entering into your full kind of power until family and responsibilities come along. Mm -hmm. And so the minute that my partner and I found out that she was pregnant and we're like, okay, let's do this. Like, you know, it was totally out of the blue. It was not a planned thing. And we're like, all right, you know, just let's do it. Let's do it. And let's make it happen. Let's figure this out. You know, we don't know how we're going to do it. And this is, again, back to sort of like the theme we're talking about. It's like, I didn't know how it was all going to work out. Sorry about that. I had a a call waiting come through and I think I hit the wrong button. So I knew I wasn't going to be ready for life until this child came along. And then the minute that my partner and I decided, let's do it, I felt something biologically change or biochemically change in me. And all of the things that I was preparing for, all of the, the opportunities I thought I wanted, it was like that power to do them and execute them came through in that very simple moment. And it's just really grown from there. You know, for me, fatherhood has been the fire of tests, like the biggest sort of fire of tests that I've had to go through. And it was really just the ability to be confident that I would continue and not give up. You know, I think that for me, I had this doubt, like, would I really be able to stand up to life's challenges? And will I be able to accomplish that will I be able to keep staying focused enough that I, I wouldn't get distracted or I wouldn't let myself become disappointed or, or in any way kind of just afraid to do the next thing. And so there was this kind of doubt of like, when the time comes, will I be able to step up? And then the whole process of going through these tests was like a, a confidence building exercise of like, yeah, here I am still here next day, still here, you know, like next mm-hmm. life change next, whatever, you know, still here, still doing it. And so that was a really powerful part of for me becoming a parent. Yeah, that's really, really awesome. And uh, how interesting that you felt there was a, an immediate biochemical change. Is that what you, how you phrased it? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that that sounds amazing. And I can't say I'm surprised that, you know, that seems right. At least hopefully that would be the case. Yeah. Wow. That sounds amazing. And it sounds like it's going well so far. So that's good. what has been on your mind lately? What have you been thinking about lately or, you know, focusing most of your energy on? Well, I would say that what I've been really focusing my energy on lately is maintaining a rationally based positive outlook on life to be aware of the actual changes that are happening and yet not be subsumed by that. I've been thinking about this recently that, you know, in a lot of ways, humans are often, we're often waiting for the big thing to happen whether that's, you know, some sort of religious thing or, you know, messianic kind of thing that might happen, or whether it's like 
some sort of a political thing or whether it's some sort of extraterrestrial thing or or whatever that is, you know, or just like grand whatever sort of like end of human species thing. And I think that in while we're waiting for all of these big things to happen, little things are happening every day. And so I'm really focused on being aware of the small revolutions that are happening, the small shifts, focusing on the innovation that's happening at the human level of how we relate to each other, of how we relate to the world. And so it's really about, you know, recognizing like, wow, like there's a lot of big things happening in the world, a lot of challenging things, a lot of really inspiring things. But for me, it's just about like, what's happening right now? Like what's happening in my neighborhood? What's happening in my area? What's happening with my friends and my family and being aware of really powerful pivots that can occur in people's lives and, and recognizing them and not dismissing them as like, that's not a big deal. Be like, that is a big deal. You know, like a recent example is like just seeing how my family comes from a very strong, like military background, mm -hmm. you know, grandpa's in the war, uncle's in the, the reserves. And like, you know, everybody's kind of like, you know, gung ho about that sort of military tradition. For me, I felt it for the longest time. I was like part of that, you know, and I would go and I would celebrate, you know, I would wear my poppy on Remembrance Day and I would just be like, yo, like this is this, you know, respect to the veterans and all of that stuff. And, and of course, I still have respect for all people. But what shifted something shifted for me was going to Europe and traveling some of the battlefields of Europe and just being like, wow, war is stupid. Like, there's just no way around this. There's no way around this. This is dumb. This is not smart. This is not a good way for humans to interact. And then seeing that how my new perspective caused friction with my family, you know, seeing that, you know, I, I just saw something today that my dad wrote where he was finally, or in my mind, for the first time, able to just kind of bring together the respect and the honor for those who uh, engaged in these battles with the reality of how dark and twisted and how awful that these soldiers uh, lives became after after these conflicts. And so mm -hmm. for me, like, that's the kind of thing I'm like, excited about, like, wow, I feel like resonance in his words. And I feel like for him, that's a big, that was a big step forward. So it's kind of that's what I'm focused on right now is like just being present and aware to these little miracles that happen all the time. Yeah, that's beautiful. And they do happen all the time. They happen all day long. And it's definitely incredibly rewarding to shift our focus towards those little things. And, and even those, those, you know, supposed really big things that happen, they're a combination of little things. I, I don't think there is such thing as a really big thing, because a big thing mm. is only ever possible, you know, as a result of a bunch of little things along the way, like it's a product of many other things. So in that way, when we're looking at something really big, uh, what we're actually looking at is a bunch of small things as well. Um, it just it doesn't look that way. Such a beautiful way of, you know, moving through life. And that story that you shared, that sounds like a, a really beautiful big moment. And yeah, war. I mean, I think I was having a conversation about this the other day. And uh, from my perspective, I understand why war happened, you know, in the past and, and you know, in the context of past periods of time, you know, maybe they made a lot more sense then. And, you know, now I think we've kind of reached a point, but this is my, my opinion, we've reached a point where it really isn't necessary. There's really no realistic reason for it. And it often 
you know, like what I don't really understand about war is why so many people are willing to, well, actually, I guess I do understand why they're willing to commit to it. I guess what I don't understand is whether or not, or I'm just unclear on it, whether or not people understand that without their kind of active participation, there would be no war. Like if you have, you know, a leader and let's say we call that leader Bob, and then we have another leader called Anna and they're, you know, (laughs) all hail Bob, all hail Anna. Yes. Um, And so Bob and Anna don't like each other. And and for whatever reason, they want to go to war with each other. And so they enlist a bunch of people and say, hey, come and fight for me for this cause that I am, you know, advocating for. You know, if all of those people decided not to participate, and the only two people on that battlefield would be Anna and Bob. And so Mm -hmm. to me, my confusion is around why are we fighting (laughs) for causes that aren't even Mm -hmm. ours. They're not Mm -hmm. actually personal to our lives. They're personal to some sort of ideal that, that, you know, either benefits someone else or doesn't benefit someone else. I don't know. It just, for me, it feels like I personally can't think of any reason why I might want to commit an act of violence towards someone else, you know, especially someone in a completely different country, really far away, super far removed from my life. And if we all just kind of didn't involve ourselves in things that had very little to do with our own lives, there just wouldn't be that many people left to to get keep a war going. And so that that's a very confusing thing for me. I, I'm not clear on why that doesn't seem very clear to everyone. Yeah, I, I agree that with that a lot. I mean, I think that the fact that you a lot of countries still do have a draft where you have mandatory or compulsory service, but so many countries have stopped doing that because it's like they, we, I think in the middle of 20th century, most of a lot of countries were like, oh man, we really just can't make people fight anymore, can we? We're going to have to actually pay these guys and women to do this. And so I think that's what's happened is like, it's become more of like a job, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where there's a, one, a song I like, you know, some men see a war and see a paycheck. And I think that that's what they've been able to incentivize people to do. And of course, there's still like that propaganda and stuff, but it's like part of a career path now. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, well, if you go and join, then, you know, when you leave, but it's always like a, a part of like a stepping stone now it's like even people that have countries like israel or other countries that have compulsory military service it's not like everybody goes and stays in the in the army or in the navy or the air force it's like they're meant to do a few years of service and then if anything happens they get called back up so i think that we're as a species we're kind of starting to see like maybe not such a good idea and you know, and, and hopefully that, that, that trend. Mm-hmm. That makes uh, complete sense. And that's a really good point. It definitely is a career path. And, and I've certainly in my younger years considered joining just for the sake of, you know, it seems like a nice paycheck and, and, uh, you know, lots of uh, exercising and, and I figure it's a great way to stay fit. And, you know, there's definitely <laughs> yeah. other reasons that had nothing to do with going right. to war. But of course I didn't do it because I figured, you know, by making this commitment, I'm also potentially, you know, signing myself up for participating in something like a war. And that was enough for me to kind of go, well, not really worth the paycheck if I have to go somewhere and shoot at someone. That makes complete sense. That makes complete sense. I I guess this is a very maybe 
out of left field question. Where do you think humanity is going as a species from an evolutionary standpoint? What I feel is that I think we're always on a trajectory of ever greater awareness and ever greater sense of our connectivity and organization. I feel like we're heading towards more order, but not in the way that order has been imposed in the past. Mm. So I feel like that, you know, this process of, of upheaval and, and disruption is actually leading us to a, a higher dimension of order and not necessarily in like a dimension that maybe people are, are used to hearing, but I feel like just the dimension of decentralized power of grassroots communities emerging. And so the order that I'm talking about isn't one that is uh, imposed by force, but is actually one that is created through our sense of reason and our sense of compassion and empathy. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that idea. And it ties well into something you said earlier, which was a, a rational, positive outlook, I believe is what you said. And mm-hmm. I, I really love that. That's an excellent way of putting things. Yeah. So the, to tie that in, it sounds to me like that would be a rational order, an order that sort of arises out of rational connections and behaviors and, and choices that people make and and. Um, way of relating to each other. And that's a really beautiful thing. I mean, that would be amazing. For me, that would indicate that there's an increase in people taking back their ability and their power to make choices for themselves and to own the the impact that they have in this world and the impact that they have around with the people around them and the ecosystems that they occupy. That's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, that, that would be amazing. I have a difficult time. I think when I was in my early 20s, I had a very, what people would call naive outlook on life. And so I was very much, you know, I held on to this utopian idea of, uh, you know, a future world that we might live in, you know, and it's really beautiful. And now, I guess, having traveled the world and met many people in different places, I recognize now that there, there needs to be, at least for me, with this rational, positive outlook, there needs to be a recognition that, you know, the a lot of my perspectives and my perceptions are informed by the environment that I live in and the sort of Western world that I live in. And it isn't necessarily informed by the realities of people in other parts of the world and the kinds of realities that they live in. And so I'm a lot more careful now not to draw conclusions based solely on, you know, what my life is like in the Western world or like what my life is like in Canada, Um, because a a lot of the things that maybe apply to me might not apply to someone in a village somewhere. So like that really now has been playing into that ideal utopian or whatever, you know, potential world where we all live in, in some order of harmony together. I think that there's a lot more room where there wasn't before to actually consider the various um, realities that people live in throughout the world. And bringing all of that together, I think that will be a process and, and it might take longer than my lifetime. I'm not convinced that that's something that I will witness. I think for me, it's more likely to happen long after I'm gone or at least this body has died. I totally get that perspective because it's important to look at it that we have to, for me, if you're a human and you're alive, 
then you get a say in how we do things. And that mm. doesn't matter what you look like, where you're from, what your pronouns are, you know, whatever. I don't care if you're here and you're, you know, you're disabled. Like it doesn't matter to me. Like if you're here, you need to say if you're a child, you're an adult, you're a senior, like everybody needs to in, in an age appropriate, obviously way, be able to weigh in on what's happening with the world and the future of it. And I think a lot of people have a lot of reasons why like sort of Western ideologies that come about is because it's been unwilling to grapple with the gigantic challenge of having to incorporate the choices and values of 7 billion people. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people will just cut the conversation short right there and say, well, it's just too complex and humans will never cooperate. And so like we have to just impose our perspective because it's the only way that order will happen. Otherwise, chaos looms, you know, the wolf is at the door. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I call bullshit on that. I'm like, you know what, that's just giving up. That's defeatist. And so for me, I look at it like it has to have, it has to be, you know, we're a collective completely. And, and, you know, and technology has actually come about to show us that collectivity and that interconnectivity that is there. So it has to include everybody or it doesn't include anybody. For me, that's a really important piece. And I think that the reason, the way that it becomes, the way that we move from utopic to practical is through the awareness of the power that each individual has, no matter who they are or where they come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the way you put that. Thank you. Especially the incorporating, like the need to incorporate the values and, and the existing sort of things all over the world. And that's, that's the way to move forward. And that makes complete sense. And, you know, for me, I propose that it isn't an irrational positive outlook to consider that the incorporating of people and ideas and just values and all of those things together and that collaboration is actually a really beautiful thing. And it would make for, you know, results that would surprise all of us, you know, if we worked together from that perspective of, you know, collaborating and saying, hey, you have a different idea on things than, than I do. You, you have a completely different perspective on things. We, you know, we may not have the same perceptions in, in this area, but I am completely open to hearing what that is. And, and I hope that you're open to hearing mine. And once we have all of that on the table, we can now look at it and go, okay, well, this one, this one seems like it's a great perspective to carry. This seems like an empowering idea. Let's use that one collectively and let's, you know, get rid of this one because this one doesn't serve us. And it's a cool way of looking at things. And it, it feels very much like uh, it's one big team and team humanity and it's, it's all about teamwork. Yeah, I feel like it is. And it's also for me that the, the, what I would say is, is, and it's about the diversity of communities and allowing people to live in, I don't know, I can't imagine, there there have to be some rules about how you impose your views on others. But I also feel like, you know, if you want to be, if you want to be team Bob or team Anna, and you want to live in a world where you're afraid of other people, but as long as you're willing to live in that fear and stay kind of in your own territory, if you will, mm -hmm. I feel like that's okay. Like, and that's all part of the process. So I don't feel like it's about, you know, it's almost like, I like this, this idea of the, the train leaving the station. It's uh, something we learned about in way, you know, a, a hundred years ago when I was in university where we were, I took this class in peace building and how to build, how to basically, you know, move a conflict from hot to peaceful 
And one of the theories of how to do that is it's called the train leaving the station, which is that basically, you know, you start to announce the, the, the peace deal or the, the, uh, the truce or the ceasefire between the parties that are willing to do so. And there are always going to be people that are intractable that are like, I, you know, you can take my arm, but you'll never take my ideology kind of people. Mm. And those people, it's like, we don't want to spend too much time worrying about them. We just want them to feel like things are moving on. And, and there's a, a, a tr- something's happening. Like he, I, I think it's like about maybe in a positive way, weaponizing FOMO, right? That fear of missing out and, mm-hmm. and sort of being like, hey, the big party's happening. You know, I don't know if you guys are coming, but it's going to be amazing. And, <laughs> and that sort of approach, which, which says, but if you don't want to come, no problem. Like, you know, I, this, I'm going to tread in a little bit of a careful way to phrase this, but, you know, there are people in the world that want to create exclusionary zones, where mm-hmm. only people that look and talk like them are allowed to be. Let's just be honest. There are people mm-hmm. out there that are actively trying to cultivate that. And whether that's racial or religious or certain gender norms, like it's, it's real. So I feel like, you know, God bless you. You know, if you want to, if you want to have, if you can convince enough people that that's a good idea and, you know, maybe we'll give you a plot of land to figure out life without spices and tacos and, and, you know, cultural music from other people. Like, I don't know how fun that would be, but I kind of feel like I want to give people that opportunity to do so. Again, not in a way that involves violence towards others that don't look or talk like them, but hey, if that's, you know, if that's your thing, you know, like, I don't know, it's not my thing, but I think what's important about all of this is that we have little mini experiments running all the time, billions and billions of little experiments, which is what human life is, right? It's just us testing and trying, testing and trying, testing and trying. So I do feel like, you know, even though my politics or my worldview might you know, look down on some of these, you know, people and ideas, I feel like, you know what, it's, it's actually okay that these experiments are running. And we're obviously trying to limit the damage and reduce violence wherever we can and, and increase uh, safety wherever we can. But it also is part of the process as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you, that, that's a really good point that you've brought up. I, I, I agree with you. I think, I think, that I, I don't think that that's a, an irrational experiment or, or test to try out. Um, and I've, I've thought about this in the context of, you know, cause often when I, when I say things like, you know, there's no need for war or, you know, why are we even doing that? Um, people will come back and say, well, you know, um, some humans like violence and some humans like to, you know, shoot at other people or hurt other people. And, and, you know, we can't get away from that. And to me, I think, well, okay, well then let's, you know, give all those people a corner of the planet and they can have at it. If, if, you know, if they really need Mm -hmm. to express that Mm -hmm. um, aggression or violence, then just Mm -hmm. let them do it in that corner, you know, and they can do Mm -hmm. it together. And, and then that way, I think I nominate, I nominate Antarctica for that. That is a great idea. I like it. (laughs) That's a great place for, you know, you know, have at it, just have at it. No problem. As long as it, you know, doesn't spill over over into the rest of the planet, um, you know, mm. for all the people that don't care for participating, you know, mm. it, it shouldn't, they should like the participation shouldn't be imposed on anyone else. It, it should just be mm-hmm. the people that want to. And, and mm-hmm. then, you know, to take that a little further, I've also considered, well, you know, now with, you know, technology being where it is and, and VR, um, you know, in becoming increasingly a part of uh, many people's lives, even myself, I, I love the VR world. Um, like that's another way of, uh, you know, 
creating the sort of space for people to express these different mm-hmm. things uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, they're no longer doing it in, in the real physical world. They're, they're doing mm-hmm. it in a virtual world. And, and mm-hmm. in that virtual world, they can create all the cities and towns wow. and, and, you know, societies mm-hmm. that they feel like and really live in that and embody that. And it, it will have no impact on, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't have, I mean, we'd have to figure mm-hmm. out how to ensure that, you know, that impact does stay contained within the digital uh, world. But that's another option that I figure, you know, in the future, that may well be a, a nice solution mm-hmm. for anyone who feels like they need to express um, or embody certain things that cause harm to others. Um, they can just do that in the virtual world. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm thinking about even horror movies and the way that the Frankenstein uh, liter- style literature from the 19th century, you know, people look at that, that, that violence and ghoulish kind of, you know, whatever, slasher movies or whatever it is that you're kind of into. It's like, you know, that is a way to um, engage with certain shadows without, you know, causing... Uh, real harm, you know, obviously, you know, children, you don't want to expose them to too much of that again, because they can't necessarily distinguish between real and and not real. And so it can affect their neural pathways in a way that's damaging. But, you know, I do feel like, yeah, like, a lot of people will get upset about video games and be like, or heavy metal or whatever, and be like, this is causing the violence or hip hop, this is causing the violence. And it's like, no, it's like, I think it's what you're saying. It's like, it's a space where violence, which is a part of human life, is able to be exercised, able to be examined and looked at without some of the the more, um, you know, obviously negative consequences spilling over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the real life consequences. Yeah, for sure. Um, this this has been a, a wonderful conversation, Nick. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Well, I just want to say that whoever is you know listening and and whoever may listen in the future. Um, that if you are someone that feels that you have a uh, an outlook on the world that is not present, that you don't see reflected, that that is okay. And that it's very possible that you're the person that is meant to come and bring us that perspective. Mm, I love that. That is beautiful. Thank you. That That's such a beautiful, um, yeah, what a beautiful gift to uh, set down at the end of this episode for anyone listening. It's a truly mm. beautiful thing. Yes. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nick, for the beautiful conversation today. Um, Yeah, just thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And I love what you're doing. And the the whole format of this show is, is really awesome. So thanks for putting this out in the world. And that was another episode of the Glove Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, wow, just that last bit that Nick shared. I mean, the entire conversation was great. And that last bit, it truly is a beautiful reminder to all of you out there and to myself and, you know, any one of us, whenever we are feeling like we're, we're carrying a perspective that isn't necessarily out there or isn't necessarily reflected back to us or it doesn't happen often enough, um, you know, just maybe we're the ones uh, meant to Uh, bring that perspective out maybe we're the ones meant to express that perspective and you know you never know maybe the more we we do that uh we we start to become the ones that are reflecting uh those perspectives back to others that are maybe feeling the way we felt before we kind of took on a a um, more expressive and active role in uh you know sharing that perspective 
Anyway, uh, thank you so much, Nick, for joining us today. Thank you, everyone listening. Sending you all lots of love out there. I hope your new year is coming along great. And uh, yeah, wishing you, wishing you all the best this year. And uh, I'll see you next time. Ciao.